Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter. Bit of a change in lineup. You'll see that it's not Mitchell Orenshaw as my co-host. Instead, I have an incredibly powerful guest on the show today. Success in life, success in investing, success in trading is about one thing, and that's grit or mindset or determination that's gonna help you push through some of the challenges that come along. And in this interview that runs for around 75 minutes, a little longer than a normal podcast, there are literally rivers of gold for you to tap into and take away from this. My guest today, as you'll hear, is an incredible person to stare down adversity and come out the other side a champion. So please join me welcoming our guest on today's podcast, Mark Omrad, Royal Marine, MBE, Invictus Games champion, father and life winner. Enjoy the broadcast. Hey guys, Andrew Baxter here. Welcome to this week's Money and Investing show and you are in for an absolute treat. We've got a special guest on today. You can see it's most definitely not Mitch and uh, when you hear the, the story you're about to hear and glean from it some life lessons, I think you'll be going down a very, very different pathway. So I'd like you all to help me welcome uh, our guest today, Mark Ormerand. Great to have you on board, Mark. Thank you for having me, Matt. I appreciate it. So a little bit of background for our, uh, our audience. Uh, former Royal Marines commander, uh, MBE more recently, elite athlete, I'd say life winner, father, and fundraiser. So there's a few boxes to tick in there, plus many more <laughs> might fill in. So tell us a bit about your background. Tell us a bit about the story and uh, I guess what's brought us together today. So I'll, I'll try and give you the, the, the quick version of this, but... Um... I joined the Royal Marines when I was 17, uh, straight out of school after a bit of back and forth trying to decide what it was I wanted to do in my life when school came to an end. So I joined up very early and I was quite fortunate in that I got through the training in one attempt. I never suffered any injuries and I managed to, to pass all the, the test requirements all the way through. And so I am a Green Beret by the time I turned 18, which was you know, a great milestone for that point in my life, but also I think a little bit dangerous because you're very arrogant when you're 18 and, and cocky and brash and, you know, you think you're invincible anyway, but you give someone a green beret and it takes it to another level. Hmm. Um, but four weeks before I was awarded that green beret, the, the whole world witnessed 9-11. You know, I passed out of train in October 2001, September 2001 is when we all saw that tragedy happen. So myself and the the other men in my troop knew that we were going to be going out to do uh, the job we were trained to do, you know, pretty early on in our careers, which, as I said, you know, for an 18-year-old, young, cocky, brash, arrogant, was actually quite an exciting prospect. So finished training, you know, it was October, so we didn't get straight into things. We had a bit, bit of downtime, you know, saw out Christmas. And then I personally was thrown into pre-deployment training for a tour of Afghanistan in early 2002. Something called Operation Jakana. Mm -hmm. Despite going through all that training, for, for some reason, it was the, the tour was scaled back and I didn't end up going on that one, which I was a little bit annoyed about, you know, because you just want to get out there and see if you can do what it is that you're trained to do. But, you know, I accepted it as, as what it was. I settled into unit life. I, I 
took up a supporting role from the UK. Uh, lots of, of traveling around the UK, picking up and dropping off people that were deploying, which made it a little bit tougher when you're dropping off people to, you know, Bryce Norton Airport, South Sarney Airport. They're jumping on Hercules's and, and they're flying out to do what you want to do. But, you know, you just accept it for what it is and you do your best to support the, the effort in whatever capacity that you have to do that. Quite soon after that, after, you know, I did a trip to Norway, learned to fight in the Arctic, a um, couple of exercises, all the basic stuff. Um, and then early 2003, Iraq came around. And again, I went on the pre-deployment training, got ready for, a, a, I think it was a four-month tour of Iraq. And this time I went, you know, I just turned 19 at the time, went out on Operation Telic 1, so spent a, a month or two in Kuwait and then pushed over that Iraqi-Kuwaiti border, went into Iraq and uh, did what we had to do there. When I came back from that tour, I was actually a little bit disappointed because I never fired a single round in almost four months on that deployment and I thought I was going to hit the ground running I thought I was going to have a bayonet between my teeth I thought I was going to be on my belt buckle crawling through the the dirt and the mud and you know taking care of bad guys and rescuing good guys and <laughs> do you know what I mean I think, and I, I think I, I the benefit benefit of our audience too on this Mark I mean the Royal Marines it's not sort of Joe Blow not being disparaging around the rest of the British armed forces but is an elite regiment, you know, 1664 founded, never been on the wrong side of a conflict. It's a frontline, full-on, deployed, hard-ass regiment. Exactly. And, and that's that was my mindset, you know. I think we've been through, like, basically a year of, of hardcore training, the longest, hardest regular forces training in the world, elite, out there to do a specific job at the highest level, you know, operating with the highest standards, and then I came back from Iraq and I was nowhere near any of the action. I ended up getting attached to an, an army medical regiment working as force protection. Mm. So making sure that those guys were safe when they were doing their job, which was great. It was a rewarding job and, and I enjoyed it. But all my friends and colleagues were up taking Saddam's palace, you know, fighting in the oil fields. And I never got close. So I came back a little bit disheartened, you know, because um, I just itching to see if I could do what it was that I was trained to do. Now, when I came back, I was probably, you know, I did, again, I went to Norway again, did a few more exercises, sailed down to America, but I was coming up to like maybe four years into my career. And my partner at the time uh, was pregnant with my eldest daughter, who's just turned 16. So it uh, makes me feel like an old man. But, um, you know, my circumstances had changed. So I decided, I looked at it and I thought, okay, so I've had my Green Beret, I've done some cool training, I've traveled around parts of the world and I've been to war all within the first four to five years of my career. Well, that's a pretty good amount of stuff to cram into that time. Now things have changed. I need to figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life and, and where I need to take things. So I decided that it was time for me to leave. So I put in my notice, you have to serve a 12-month period uh, when you put your notice in, rec doing it the regular way. And I left. Now, unfortunately, uh, things didn't work out how I had planned them. I, I separated from my daughter's mother, went on a bit of a downward spiral. I, I went out to South Africa 
and I retrained as a bodyguard for six weeks. And I thought I was going to be able to get a, a job in the close protection world, mm. but I couldn't. And I don't know why, because there was lots of work around, but I think I was 21, maybe 22 at the time. So it might have been my age. It might have been the fact that I had no experience, didn't know anyone in the industry, but I just couldn't get my foot in the door to get this new career started. So after a couple of negative experiences as a civilian, um, you know, stepping back, taking a look, I was actually, I was sleeping on friends' sofas at this time, mm. working for cash in hand. I didn't really have a fixed address and could see things were going the wrong kind of way. So I made a decision that I was going to go back into the Royal Marines, you know, do what I was good at, do, do what I loved mm. and pick up my career where I left off and, and try and refocus, reassess and, and move forward with my life. Just on that point, if I may, Mark, a lot of people would maybe look at that and go, okay, you're on a path, you hopped off the train and you kind of swallowed your pride to get back into it. Sometimes I think some of the biggest lessons in life are when you put that sort of ego and preciousness to the side and just go, this is what I really want to do. And it doesn't really matter what anybody else thinks. It's the track that you're on and you get on with it. What do you, what do you think about that? Absolutely. 100%. You know, I'm, I'm going to be 38 next week. Back then I was 24, you know, so I've, I've grown a lot over those years, but back then that was my mindset as a young lad. It was like, Oh, I can't do this. I can't swallow my pride. I can't go running back admitting that I messed up, admitting that I need help. You know, it was difficult really difficult. It takes a lot of character to do that. And we're going to hear a, a little bit more about your dog determination and character as, as we go forward. But you know, huge respect for having that whole attitude of let's keep moving forward. Yeah, no, you, you have to. And, and I think I didn't know it back then, but I know it now that you have to rely a lot on your, your gut instinct. You know, my gut was telling me that it was the right thing to do, but my ego was telling me it's, it's difficult to do, mm -hmm. you know, but I went with my gut in the end and I rejoined I went to a place uh, not far from where I live now called 40 Commando. And they were next on the rotation to deploy to Afghanistan. So I missed it on Optikana. They were now training for Operation Herrick. And the unit that I joined were already, uh, they'd already started the pre-deployment training. So I, I hit the ground running again, joined my company, um, got to know some of the lads. I'm very much... Well, I used to be very much like I wanted to be the grey man. So I'd always I'd get somewhere new around new people, keep my mouth shut, kind of slowly make my way in. I don't want to make too much of an impression, which is what I did. Slotted in and then did all that training. And the funny thing was, I knew from the pre-deployment training that I did for Operation Jacana and for Operation Telic, this was so much different. It was so much faster more aggressive, more detailed. And, and I knew that the deployment was going to be very, very different, you know? So got all of that out of the way, got myself ready to go, did what I had to do in terms of sorting out my affairs back here. And then on the 7th of September, 2007, we deployed uh, out to Afghanistan, initially to Camp Bastion, mm -hmm. where we, you know, you got to spend some time acclimatizing, getting all your kit and equipment ready and running some training serials in this new environment. And then about four or five days after initially landing, I was flown out to a place called Ford Operating Base Robinson in Helmer province, where I was to spend the next six months of my tour fighting the Taliban. And as I expected, uh, this tour was very, very different. 
I definitely didn't have to worry about not firing any of any rounds during this this six month tour because pretty much on the day that I landed in Fob Robinson, fighting was happening every day. You know, either we were taking a fight to the enemy or we were defending our position from any incoming attacks. And and it was it was what I imagined actually doing the job of a Royal Marine commander was going to be. And uh, it was a wake-up call. You know, it, it was, you're in an environment where you can't ever really relax. You know, and what I mean by that is, uh, specifically, I remember waking up, or being woken up at like three o'clock in the morning from Fob Robinson, from my cot bed, where we became under, we came under attack. And having to run out in flip flops, my underwear, throw on some body armor and a helmet, and then get into a forty-five minute firefight. Wow. You know, there's never really time to take your your foot off the gas. You've always got to be ready and and, and on your toes. You know, mm. and that tour went actually pretty well. You know, the first for the first well, <laughs> you'll find out it didn't go so well in a minute. But for the first three and a half months, it went very well. You know, we were going out and we were conducting foot patrols. We were embedding ourselves in the local villages and providing food, water, security for the villagers. We were disrupting enemy positions, destroying weapons caches, all that kind of stuff, and successfully defending our position from many attacks from the enemy. And we had never, you know, in that three and a half month period, we had never sustained any injuries or fatalities at least not combat ready we had a couple of silly things you know lads falling off the trucks and twisting their ankles and you know just dopey things like that but we had never sustained any injuries as a result of fighting with the enemy so our morale was was pretty high we thought we were doing a great job um we were dominating the ground we were at this point now where we were taking the fight to them you know and they were on the back foot and on the early hours of Christmas Eve morning, myself and a handful of my friends were called up to the headquarters compound and we were given a brief on what was to be our next routine foot patrol. So when we found out what it was we were going to be doing, we went back to our compound. We did exactly the same thing we'd done a million times before. We prepared our kit, prepared our equipment. Everyone was given their responsibilities, uh, you know, in case of contact with the enemy that kind of stuff and about 10 o'clock in the morning we went back up to the hq compound we formed up by the the rear entrance of the camp and we got ready to leave now the idea of this patrol was that we would leave the rear entrance of camp in two sections with eight men in each section one would go north one would go south we were told to patrol the immediate perimeter of the camp pushing no more than 300 meters out. And then we were going to meet at the front entrance to camp. So now the opposite side, secure the location, close things down and finish up for the day. So in terms of what we've been doing to that point, this was very, very basic, low level stuff. We weren't pushing out for six, seven, eight hours that we'd done before. We weren't going one, two, three miles. We didn't have a specific mission or objective. It was just go out the back door, patrol the camp, make sure things are okay, come in the front door and finish up. You know, very, very, very basic low-level stuff. And the intelligence that we were being fed gave us no cause for concern, that there was nothing being told to us or drip-fed to us that said, you need to watch out here, watch out there. 
we've been observing this or that, you know, just be on your guard. So we got ready to leave. I was second in command of the section that went north. The other guys went south. And we went out and we did what we were tasked to do. About five hours later, now both sections found themselves at the opposite side of the camp. So at the front entrance, now ready to secure a location, close things down and finish up for the day. And the section that I was in happened to be positioned on this high piece of ground. You know, it was a, a feature around our area of operations, what we call the North Fort. Now, slightly beneath the North Fort was Ford Operating Base Robinson. So we could look down and we could see uh, most of the camp, especially more, more especially the compound that we were working out of. And then beneath that, just off to the side of the main dart road that ran through the area was the other section of men that we left with earlier in the day. So because we're on a high piece of ground, we're in a tactically advantageous position because we can see everything around us and it's a lot easier to fight going down a hill than it is up. Mm. So we were given the task of, we call it overwatch, which means protecting the other section. They would peel into camp. They get behind the perimeter wall. They would then be safe and they provide protection for us as we came off the high feature, uh, climbed the little hill that we had to to get into camp, and then we were going to finish up. So like I said, very basic, low-level, standard kind of stuff that we've done a million times before. So after we were given our task in, the, the guy in charge, Corporal Sean Halesby, took half of the section, gave them their fire positions and their areas of responsibility. I took my half of the section and... About five meters to my front was a small, shallow bowl in the ground. Now, normally what you would do if you went farm and you stopped on a patrol is you'd want to take cover behind a tree, a building, a rock, a shrub, whatever you can to give you the, the best form of protection that you can from a potential incoming enemy attack. So I thought if we get in this little bowl on the ground, we get down on our bellies, we're on a high feature anyway, we're going to be as well protected and as well hidden from the enemy as we possibly can be. So the lads jumped in, you know, I had to stand back and there was a couple of things I had to check, uh, a couple of SOPs I had to run through. When they had taken their fire positions and they were happy, they gave me the thumbs up, did a few more checks to make sure that we were tight, you know, and, and defensive in case there was a small arms attack. And then I started walking over towards the position that I selected for myself. Now, when I got there, and I went to get down onto my stomach as my right knee hit the ground. That was the moment that I knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the lads were safe. They were all where they were supposed to be. Your last man in and uh, you copped it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I remember all of it up until the point where the evacuation took me to the the Chinook helicopter landing. And the one thing I, that I always say about this is that those men on the ground were so unbelievably professional that, it, you know, when you drill these things, you know, nine times out of 10, you can mess it up. Someone will, will do something wrong and they'll mess it up. No matter how high-paced and aggressive you're trying to drill it and get it right, someone will, will make a mistake. But when you have to do it for real, 
and someone's life's on the line, like the way the guys just kick into action and the machine just works it is phenomenal. You know, so we're, we're kind of, we're trained that in that kind of situation, you have to override your natural instincts and emotions as a human being. When you see your friend torn to shreds yeah. by a landmine, potentially going to die, you, the first thing you want to do is run in to save his life. But we don't do that because you risk setting up other devices which could hurt or kill you or mm. further hurt and kill the casualty. And there were six other devices scattered around me sure. and everyone remained professional. The jobs that they were given before we left, everyone did. First guy gets struck on the radio. There's another guy close to me on his belly with a bayonet prodding the ground, making sure he's got a safe path when the medic gets to me. There were guys coordinating the defensive, uh, you know, all around defense in case there's a small arms attack. No one broke protocol. Everyone was extremely professional and, and did everything to, to the highest standards. And the medic got in there, he got to me. So if we, pause, if we can if we can just pause there for a second, Mark, obviously, you know, there's a process in there and we're we're a big believer in the the sort of maxim, I guess, if the process is right, the results follow, which, you know, and given the extensive training that the Royal Marines go through before deployment, you know, it's it's not your, it's not everyone's first rodeo, so to speak. You, you talk about kneeling down and, and the device going off. What happened in that moment or the immediate moments after that, either in terms of, say, the extent of your injuries and, and, and what was going on in your mind when such a horrendous event is literally unfolding underneath you? Well, I'll tell you what. So when the device exploded, <clears throat> excuse me, if you, if you imagine the terrain in Afghanistan, it's very sandy and very dirty and dusty. So this huge dust cloud gets created. Now, I, I felt no pain had no, you know, it's not like a movie where you hear a click and then a bang. You know, I didn't have a clue what I'd done. And my initial instinct was that we were under attack. I thought we had been hit with a rocket or a mortar. It had exploded nearby, created a dust cloud. And straight away, I'm thinking we need to ID where the enemy is and neutralize the threat in case anyone gets hurt or killed. So in my mind, immediately after the explosion, when I can't see anything because of the dust cloud, I'm thinking... Right, idea where the enemy is, turn around, take them out, get everyone out safely. It wasn't until the dust cloud settled and I looked down to, to my legs that I understood what had happened. You know, and, and I'm lying in this, this little bow that I'm in. After I read the report, it's like 12 feet deep by 15 feet around now. And then, you know, it, it everything internally goes at like 150 mile an hour but everything externally is in slow motion mm. you know and, and there's a million things going through my mind especially when your adrenaline's spiked and your fight or flight's kicked in and you're worried about your friends and your colleagues getting hurt or killed and you just you're trying to make a million decisions at once and you can't see anything mm. so you, you know all this stuff's running through your head and then the reality hits like oh shit i stood in a landmine we're not under attack then a whole new thought process kicks in. And you're like, now I need to try and save my life. Am I going to die? What, what? I've never been in this situation before. What, what do we do? Is this even happening? Mm. You know, because it feels very surreal. Mm. It's a very surreal feeling, especially when there's no pain. Your brain can't process what it's looking at because it doesn't make sense, especially when there's no pain. And so I just went through this, you know, and again, this is inside my mind. This is all going like super quick. This is all like two, three, four seconds at the most. 
that I'm going through all these thoughts and, and emotions and, and feelings, trying to figure things out. But, um, you know, I realized quite quickly what it was that I had done and then went through this range of emotions that a lot of people wouldn't expect. So there was no fear of, of dying. You know, I wasn't scared that I wasn't going to make it. I just felt angry that I was the idiot that triggered this device a little, you know, even embarrassed and ashamed that I had done it because it seemed like a stupid thing to do for, you know, an quote unquote elite level soldier, you know, to do something so basic. And then I start to feel a whole wave of guilt that I had put my team in a position where if there's a small arms attack now to follow this up, people are going to die. And that would be my fault. You know, so you start to feel guilt. And then I, my daughter, you know, she was, uh, she wasn't even three years old at this point. And then I immediately, you know, again, this is like two, three seconds, all this has gone on in my mind. I started thinking back to her and thinking, God, if I survived this, she's not really want to want a relationship with me because I've got three limbs torn off, you know, and she's probably going to be embarrassed. She's probably going to get picked on at school. You know, so what happens if I do survive it? And just a million things flood through your mind. You don't even think about dying. It's just like the last thing you think. So you just mentioned in passing that you lost three limbs. So obviously both legs and your right arm. Yeah. Yeah, it had to be the dominant arm, didn't it? You know, I couldn't <laughs> have had it easy and lost my left one. I had to lose the right one at the same time. But yeah, the, the arm was torn off as well. Um that was still attached actually my legs were gone they were incinerated um i mean it must have been some outrageous heat from this device because i don't want to gross you out too much but if you imagine a, a picture of a skeleton the knees were still attached the tibia and fibula were there covered in dirt and sand but all the flesh and muscle and everything had just been it's almost like when you you see one of those, like a video of a really well-cooked rib and the bone just slides out and the meat, it was like that. It was just like the bone was clean. We'll be getting a few vegans on the back of this. Uh, there'll be a few <laughs> So you get medevaced out. Did any yep. time you think it was, it was it? That was it? Your number was up and, and you were gone? Not really. It, it was so strange. Like, so I got evacuated out, out of this crater I got put in the back of a vehicle. We got drove back into the camp. And the last thing I can remember is this, this helicopter landed. And obviously it creates quite a sandstorm from its propeller blades. The exhaust, the heat that comes out of those things is quite intense. That was beating down on me. And then I passed out, which is when I thought I had died. Well, I, technically I had, according to the medics, they had to bring me back on the, the Chinook. But... It's strange, you know, because I think a lot of people think you would be scared and, and you would panic because you're going to die. But it's actually very calm and, and relaxing. Like, I, I don't know why. Um, you know, I didn't see any white light or any of that kind of stuff you see in movies. But I just felt extremely tired, like completely drained of, of all my energy and my entire body. I felt like I just needed to go to sleep and have a nap. And I felt peaceful and relaxed. And I was like, okay, cool. This is it. You know, it's a pretty good way to go. 
I'm happy with this. It's honourable. You know, I've died doing something that hopefully will improve people's lives and make the world a better place. I'm good with that. And then next thing I know, three days later, I wake up in a hospital back in the UK, um, heavily sedated with tubes down my throat and oxygen masks on. And again, still extremely exhausted and tired, I think because of all the medication that was pumping through my body and the infections I was fighting off. But then gradually went through the process of, of being brought out of a coma and, and back to the real world. I think it'd be fair to describe that as a little bit more than a setback. And, um, you know, I think having a, anything, you know, anyone listening and watching this is so hard to relate to such an enormous trauma. And I guess a look over the edge into the abyss uh, and to come back from it. So back in the UK, rehab starts. And I guess, you know, how was that process? How encouraging were the doctors, for example, in terms of, you know, the possibility of prosthetics? You know, that, that, was, that was the rough bit. So when they brought me out of the coma, and they, they did it so perfectly, like day by day, the first week in intensive care, the way they re- reduced my medication to bring me back to the real world was perfect for me to understand the extent of my injuries. It wasn't like a cold turkey, you've woke up and this is what's happened type thing. But then when I went upstairs in the hospital to the Barons and Plastics Ward to start the, you know, the real long road to recovery, I had amazing support around me from friends, family, the Royal Marines, doctors, nurses, and, and all those people. And I was trying to be as positive as I could be. But about three and a half weeks into it, I had a visit off a doctor who wasn't part of my team. He was the the UK's leading professional in the field of amputations. And he walked in my room and, you know, it's like a scene out of a movie. You know, it's a bit cliche, but you just walked in and said, look, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to get ready for life in a wheelchair. You know, I've been doing this for 33 plus years and I've never met anybody who's got a leg missing above the knee that is a full-time prosthetic user because prosthetics are so painful they're so difficult to use and they take so much energy that most people just throw them on once in a while and then they put them back in the wardrobe and get in a wheelchair and you're in a situation where leg is both legs so well both legs above the knee and my dominant arm above the elbow you know with, with amputations it's there's like a hierarchy if you like like a, it starts at like a single below knee then a single above knee then a single through the hip, then you put that into the next leg, you know, so the more length and the more joints you've got, the easier it is for you. So I had lost both my legs above the knees and my right arm above the elbow, my dominant arm above the elbow, which it's not the hardest situation ever because I've still fortunate enough to have a strong left arm, but it's pretty rough. And so when he says, even if you had one leg missing above the knee, you couldn't do it. You know, when I looked at my situation and thought, oh, I've got both my legs and my strong arm, how the hell am I going to do that? And, you know, whether I'm on stage or on Zoom or wherever telling people this part of the story, I always am very honest and tell people that that is, that is the first and, on, first and only time in my life that I've, that I've contemplated suicide. Oh. Because I was 24 years old. And four weeks prior to this, I was six foot two. I weighed 16 stone. I was closing in on the peak of my physical fitness. 
I was a Royal Marines commando. I had the best job in the world. That was who I was. That was my identity. And now I was four foot two. At that point, sub, I think I was like eight stone, 12 pounds or something. I was, you know, I just didn't, I wasn't who I was. And then to be told by this expert that this is the best it's going to be for the rest of my life. You know, you're looking at 70 years living this way. And like, I don't really want to do that. It's not who I am. It, 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 so, yeah. you, you get to someone that's an expert and they have the ability, if you want to put the pin in your balloon of optimism, mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to try and inflate it more. And I know you've got to have a sense of realism with people, but I think yeah, that the, 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 it can be so dangerous to steal someone's dream and motivation if you let them. Obviously, you didn't. So what happened next? So I went into a bit of a downward spiral after that. You know, I turned my phone off. I didn't take any visitors. You know, I'm still in a bed at this time with tubes up my nose. I, I've got a huge hole at that's this point in my left hand, so I could only use two fingers to pull myself up and sit in bed. So all I, all I could do was sit there and think, mm. you know, for days and days. But about five days after that, uh, another guy knocks on my, my hospital room door and you know, I'm starting to feel a bit better at this point. So I invite this guy in. I didn't know who it was. And he walked in my room wearing a set of prosthetic legs. He was a double above knee amputee. Uh, his name was Mick Brennan. He had been blown up by a suicide bomber in Iraq in 2005 uh, while serving with the army. And he walked in my room on prosthetics. So I'm like, well, hold on. This guy's walking around a, a double above knee amputee on prosthetics. I just got told that that's not a possibility. So Mick sat down with me. And he told me a story about how he was injured. He talked me through his journey from hospital bed where I was to where he was at that point in his life. He was training for the the Winter Paralympics as a downhill skier. He was still in the army. He was a father. He was a prosthetic user. You know, he talked me through all of that. He, he took his legs off, put them on, showed me how it worked, talked me through the, the process of being issued with prosthetics and what the difficulties were and you know, how he overcame them. And he spent about six hours with me, mm. you know, and um, then he got up and left. And when he left, you know, he gave me this, he gave me hope about what I could expect to achieve. Mm. And so I got a laptop in my room. I got a laptop from the, the Royal Marines welfare brought into my room and got hooked up to the internet. So I started doing my own research on people with my level of injuries around the world to, to see what it was that they were doing and what they were achieving. And it, it was pretty phenomenal, you know, and, and it, it gave me what I needed at that time. And so after six weeks in total in hospital, uh, I got the, the green light to leave and go to rehab where I was eventually, once I'd fully healed, I was eventually going to get issued my prosthetics. And so I got to rehab with just a, a mindful of optimism you know, of what it was I wanted to achieve. And it wasn't, it wasn't from this place of, you know, screw you, I'm going to prove you wrong. It was just, actually, I've seen what's possible. And I'm, I'm a pretty positive, driven and motivated person. And I want to see how far I can take this, you know, not just for me, but for anyone that goes through the system after me and gets told the same thing that I had just been told. And unfortunately, you know, I was the UK's first triple amputee I think there were like 33 eventually from the conflict. So, 
you know, it, it was important to, to do that. Pave the way, lead. Right. Isn't right. it interesting if, if someone's able to turn a light on and open a door and say, look, this, this, I've done this, you can do it too, versus it's not possible based on the theory. Mm -hmm. um, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a huge breakthrough. Now, I want to talk about um, the importance of mentors. And, and, and there's a, an American who you're very familiar with, Cameron Clapp. Yep. Tell us about the impact that, that Cameron had and, and I guess how confronting was it for you to have to, and I hate to use the term safety blanket for a, to, to a warrior, but to leave the safety blanket in the UK and do it. Tell us the backstory there. So Cameron was one of the guys that I found online. He, he's a triple amputee. He was run over by a train in 2002, double above knee and his right arm, even actually higher than mine, almost through his shoulder. He's from California, you know, um, big, big surfer, you know, outdoors kind of guy. And he was, from what I saw online, from, from YouTube and his website and social media, he was a full-time prosthetic user, didn't use a wheelchair. He was surfing. He was driving unadapted vehicles. He was competing in adaptive triathlons. He was running, swimming. You know, he was traveling around America independently with no carers, giving motivational talks to school kids, you know, and, and telling them his story and some of the mistakes he made when he was younger, doing all the things that I wanted to be doing, but was told weren't possible. And so I just used to watch Cameron's videos and I would, I would excitedly show my team. I'd be like, look, look what this guy's doing. You know, we got the same injuries. Why, why can't we set this as a goal and, and try and achieve this? And... I don't know whether it was lack of knowledge or, or fear of failure or what it was, but no one seemed keen to try and do this. Mm -hmm. So in the end, I just reached out to him and I said, look, mate, this is who I am. This is what's happened to me. I think what you're doing is incredible. I want to do it too. Can you help me? And so about a week later, he got back in touch and said, yeah, absolutely. He introduced me to his team of, of prosthetists and um, clinicians over in America. And they all started helping me, you know, via email, DM and, and that kind of stuff, telling me what kind of the kind of things I could and should be doing to try and improve my independence, reduce my pain. Did that, did that, stretch, did that help you stretch your goals or expectations once you realized that it's not a no, it's actually a yes, you can? Unbelievably, yeah. Yeah, they, they were... They were talking to me in a language that I was now starting to understand when it came to prosthetics uh, and, and this new world that I was living in. And because I had seen what was possible with Cameron and what they, and you know, what he was achieving, I knew I could do it as well, or, or at least get close to it. If I did what they told me to do, because they'd achieved it. And the thing is they, they'd spent six years trialing stuff, failing at stuff, succeeding at stuff, tweaking stuff, adjusting their approach and, and the components they used on their legs and the strategies that they deployed to achieve what they'd done. So, so, and so, so they've done the, the, a lot of their heavy lifting, Mark, which people think, okay, well, you just plug and play, but the heavier still lifting is a full commitment from your part to plug into what yeah. they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got to go to, presumably you've got to go to California to do this. 
It was Oklahoma. The the training center was in Oklahoma. I it did have to go Plymouth. there. It's a fair way from Plymouth. So I mean, what do you take the wheelchair? Do you take a support team to help get there? What what did they say? Do you know I the, the whole journey was just epic. First of all, I wasn't allowed to go. I was still serving in the military. And I went back and forth in my mind a million times, just stressed out. And in the end, I just went AWOL. And I, I didn't do it to be disrespectful. I did it because I knew that in 10 years time, if I didn't make that trip, I'd, I'd regret it. Mm -hmm. So I kind of just went off the radar and went anyway. But when I went, they said, you're not allowed to bring a wheelchair with you and you can't bring your carer. So at the time, you know, I had my, my, my wife doing lots for me. I had physios, doctors, you know, all these people running around doing everything for me. And they said, you can't bring anyone. You have to come on your own and you can't bring your wheelchair, which as you said earlier, it was my safety blanket. And I'll be honest, I, I thought about backing out. It seemed like too overwhelming of a task. But in the end, I'm like, right, I'm, I'm just going to do it. It's going to be, it's going to be really difficult, you know, but I'm, I'm going to go over there. I'm going to do it and I'm going to see what I can achieve. I, so I, I think this is, this, this is pivotal because it's talks cheap, but, you know, money buys the whiskey and it's all right to say oh, I've done the stuff online or I've, we've had correspondence. But that confrontation for you, and I guess leaving from the UK is going to be from one of the London airports, which are pretty busy at the best of times and not overly user-friendly for able-bodied people, to then say, right, I've got this flight, I've got the TSA to deal with in America, which again is not much fun, I'm going to do this solo and they're not letting me bring a wheelchair. So if you wanted to have a, a list of more than valid excuses, actually not even excuses, but reasons for not going, it would be a fairly, fairly lengthy list, yet you said, I'm doing this. I, I think this is a really important part of this journey in terms of that mental commitment and say, oh, hello, high water, I'm doing this. Yeah. And I, I, I'll tell you now, it, it was horrendous. You know, even from just, just to drive, the four and a half hour drive from Plymouth to the airport was bad enough. But for a double above knee amputee, it takes anywhere between 300 and 500% more energy to do anything than an able-bodied person. Now, I was at a point in my journey where my prosthetics were still very uncomfortable. My body was still adjusting to having these foreign objects hanging off my three residual limbs. So I was already sore from the drive. I had this huge suitcase that I had to lug through the airport. I had a backpack that I had to take, you know, phone, keys. I had to, you know, navigate from the parking area into the departures lounge, find my gate you know, just do all this stuff without any help or support. I was just complete. I was exhausted before I even got on the plane. I had to change my shirt because I'd sweat so much. I was on a, like an eight and a half hour flight in economy wedged in now without getting too crude, you know, as a man with, I've got carbon fiber thighs, those seats in economy aren't the widest and I've got certain parts of my anatomy between my thighs that gets squashed. Mm. So I'm sat in this seat for eight and a half hours squashed, you know, unable to really move and adjust and get comfortable. Then you get off the plane the other side, you're in a foreign country on your own. That can be quite overwhelming on its own, just to navigate an airport in a foreign country on your own. So when I get there and I've got to, you know, take the bag off the carousel. And I think I fell over that first time and, and just hit the deck in the airport. And I'm exhausted and I'm meeting these strangers. 
And when I got there, from the minute I got there, these guys weren't like, you know, oh, you know, how was the flight? Let me take your bag. They're like, go get your bag. We've got to get in the car and go. You know, the tough love approach. Absolutely. And, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to take the elevators. I had to take the escalators. And it just comes with so many challenges. Like, I got one arm. So I'm, you imagine going down an escalator with a huge suitcase behind you on prosthetics with one arm. I can't even reach out and stable myself holding the handrail. I've got to literally squeeze my ass cheeks, tense my core and try and stay upright. And I actually, I've, someone's got footage of it somewhere. I did fall over on an escalator once. And when you get to the bottom, so I'm down there at the bottom, the stairs are moving towards me. My bag's behind me. All the people are coming down behind me. I can't get up because every time I grab the handrail, it's a moving handrail. It's just throwing me back on the, on the deck again. I keep hitting the deck. I can't get off. And all these people are running back up and I'm sore. I'm tired. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I'm angry. And, but I, I knew that that three weeks was going to change my life. I can just I think of this now. And this is, this is sorry to cut you off is, 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 you know, 10 years ago now, the fire in the emotion of how you're describing this right now is so real. Uh, and I know everyone watching this will be able to feel it. You, you, you're up for the fight. Absolutely. Because in my mind, and I tell you what got me through a lot of it, in my mind, I looked at Cameron and th this, this isn't, there is zero, zero disrespect meant in this comment. But when you're in the military, you, you always think you're better than civilians. I don't know if it's just the way they, they tell you, but it's like, you know, you're in the military, you're the, you're the best ever, you know, you're better, way better than civilians. And so I looked at Cameron and I thought, well, he's a civilian. If he can do this, I'll easily do it. Do you know what I mean? I massively underestimated it. But my motivation was to represent the Royal Marines as well as I could. Even though I'd gone AWOL and, you know, I was going to be in trouble when I got back. I wanted to use the, the mindset and live up to the standards that were instilled in me as a Royal Marine. Yeah in my rehab in a foreign country representing the UK and and that fired me up and got me in the the right headspace to push through the pain and you know and it was unbelievable the pain just for three weeks without the rest in a wheelchair and it was unreal but that was my motivation to to represent where I'd come from to the highest level and, and push through the pain and try and do what a lot of people didn't think was possible, but what these guys had shown was possible, mm. you know? It's, it's one of those things, I think, you, you know, someone's got the results and you can not plug in because it's not fair to say that. There's an enormous amount of commitment to try and plug into something like that, to stretch yourself beyond. And having a, a, a I think Napoleon Hill calls it a definite major purpose. You have to have a purpose in mind that's so beyond the event itself, the, the bigger picture, the bigger goal longer term to drive you through that. Let's wind the clock forward if we can. Now, I heard a story and this, this beggar's belief that you and some mates have actually run across the continental US. Yeah, New York to LA, 3,563 miles. That's what that red jersey is right there. That's a t-shirt from the event okay. uh, so back in 2010. Just for something to do. Maybe you didn't like flying that much with the TSA or less painful running. <laughs> Do you know what? It, it was a, it was a military fundraiser and I did, obviously, so 
I said earlier, it's 300 to 500% more energy for me to walk than it is an able-bodied person. Running, for me, is, is more than that. And when you add the fact that I don't even like running, I've never liked that. In fact, I would say I just hate it. I've always hated it. Um, but yeah, we, we decided back in 2010 to run from New York to LA over 63 days. I was the only disabled member of the team, but we had a US, UK Marine team. Um, and we just went on an adventure. We went on an adventure and it was incredible. And I'd, I'd love to do something similar to it again where I could probably enjoy it more and take it in more. I, I was so focused on the physical side of it because I was still at that stage of my journey hmm. that I'd love to do something similar again because it, it was just so, it was amazing. Like what, what an adventure, just running across the country and seeing how diverse it is. It, it, it just beggars belief. I mean, the, there are so few able-bodied people that would even contemplate taking on something like that with every excuse in the world uh, as to why not. And, and yet, you know, it can be done. You haven't stopped there either. Obviously, I, 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 you've, you've done the bike ride that was around the UK. I think was it 3,000 kilometres on the pushy? 3,000 miles? 3,000 miles. Found- I've been Australian yeah, since I've been here. <laughs> Yeah, we went around, we started in Plymouth here and we went anti-clockwise around the, the entire coastline and then back to Plymouth again, which obviously on bikes was a lot quicker. I think we did that in 30 days. Um, again, same kind of format, team event, raising money for military charities and just going out and exploring and having an adventure. And talking of military charities and the profile on that, obviously, you know, Invictus Games um results are, i know it's been a, a very personal and private journey for you but what a, a public recognition of your success i think i'm right in saying you're now sitting on 11 medals including a couple of gold medals at the invictus games now which is uh, absolutely incredible yeah i competed in in canada and in australia mm-hmm. uh so over two years managed to rack up 11 medals four gold four bronze three silver and then what, what was really great was at, at the first one in Canada. And I, I just, there's, there's, a, there's only a few things in my life that I've achieved that I really get, I get goosebumps when, when I think about them, you know, Green Beret being one of them. But at that first games, they, they gave, they give out an award at every games. They give it the, the team of the event and the individual athlete of the event. So of every country, of every athlete, they'll select one person to get this award. And, and I got it in the first year in Canada. Wow. And it was unbelievable. Like, I just, I couldn't believe it. You know, I, I didn't come from a sporting background. It's the first time I'd ever even attempted sport, let alone the first time I competed. And so to walk away with that was phenomenal. Get a bit of an insight into your personality. I want to talk about the breaststroke because you're not renowned for your breaststroking abilities, or at least you were. <laughs> Tell us, tell us, tell us a little bit about um, you. This story for the gold medal. Now, I, I think to paraphrase, there was there was one competitor that was registered, and they were going to scratch the event because only one person. Is that right? Yeah. So in Canada, in the first games, I got really friendly with some of the athletes from the Australian team because one of their coaches was from the UK, and his parents lived like five miles from me here. Mm-hmm. So we we struck up this relationship. And Gary, one of the the athletes, was in my classification. He was a special forces sniper really really nice guy and we're about the same age so in the second year in australia i was sat there with neil the coach talking and we were catching up we were at poolside and because of the extent of our injuries 
there are only a few athletes in our classifications. So mm. with swimming, you don't have to do heats. You go straight through to the finals. So we were sat there talking, watching everyone in the heats. And I was asking Neil, the coach, what events Gary was in, because I knew that I was going to do swimming the next day. So he's like, you know, 50 meter freestyle, 100 meter freestyle, backstroke, breaststroke, and all this kind of stuff. And he said, with the breaststroke, he said, oh, Gary's the only one doing the breaststroke. Now, I don't know, I still don't know much about sport. I just kind of go into these things blind. And I said, oh, that's brilliant. That means he's going to get a gold medal straight away because he's the only one competing. And he said, no, it doesn't work like that. He said, you have to have at least two people in the race. And then there'll only be one medal awarded. There won't be a gold and silver automatically. It'll just be one person gets a gold. So if there's not another athlete, they'll just cancel the event. And I sat there and I, li I literally looked up in the stands while these heats were going on. And there's thousands of people screaming and cheering for these athletes. And I just thought, you know what? I'll, I'll give it a shot. I've never done a breaststroke before. I've only got one arm. I'm probably going to go around in a circle. I said to Neil, I said, if you ask the judges... If, I, if it's not too late, if I can jump in, this was the following day that the event was going, I'll, I'll jump in and have a go. So he came back 10 minutes later and he went, yeah, they said, that's fine. So I was like, oh, damn, now I've got to do it. So the next day, like 20 minutes before the race, I got into the practice pool and I had to go at breaststroking. And, and I did kind of go around in a circle to start with. And then I developed this kind of custom, like stroke that I did. Uh, I, I didn't even know if it was a legal thing I could do. I, I didn't know much about the rules, but it, all I knew is that it made me go forward. So I had a quick go. I did 25 meters and then got out and had to do the race. And uh, I ended up winning it. I ended up <laughs> getting a gold medal in it. But my God, it was exhausting. So like, I've got bragging rights. There's an ashes win there. How uh, was it meant <laughs> on the back of that? Thanks for riding shotgun with me. You beat me bit of competition yeah no I, I actually i felt really bad at the end of it you know what i mean but it's one of those things where you're going to give it your all no matter what and you want to win i don't care what anyone says when you get in there you, you want to win but when i did i felt a little bit bad about it but it, i'll tell you what what made me feel better is that i only won by 0 0.25 of a second like a quarter of a second so it was super close. Details, they don't matter. They don't matter. Good point. Right. But, um, <laughs> and the bragging rights too. Yeah, but it, it was just phenomenal because for me, it, mentally, the, the place I had to go to mentally to do that, mm. it was just the pure grit and determination. I had no technique, no style. I was rubbish. I looked awful. It was horrendous. But I just had to adopt that mentality of just keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going until I hit the wall. Let's talk a little about mindset if we can, as we sort of come around the sort of end towards the finish line here. Um, you know, obviously, your mental toughness and, and drive, I've had the opportunities, a fair few of them hanging on the wall behind me to spend some time with some, some famous, significant achievers. And this conversation has touched the nerve like you wouldn't believe. If we, if we talk about, say, some of the self-talk that you set yourself up with, what's your mantra? What goes through your head? What do you say to yourself to drive yourself harder, even if you don't want to, or even if you're frightened of failing? I think it, for me, 
I know this is going to sound so corny, but you know when people say the only person you're in competition with is yourself? I, I'm constantly trying to improve myself, mm. like holistically across the board as a dad, a, a husband, an athlete, an employee, a businessman, entrepreneur, whatever it is. I'm always trying to improve myself. And I genuinely, you know, looking at some of the pe- people on the wall behind you there, I, I look at people like that and I think they've, they achieve unbelievably phenomenal things in their life. And there's no reason that all of us can't do the same if, if we have the right kind of mindset and the right attitude and we believe in ourselves enough. Mm. And th- this is what happened with Cameron. You know, I looked at this guy and I thought, we're in a very similar situation. If he's achieved that massive high level of independence, then I can do the same. If I just adopt the same kind of mindset, techniques, strategies that he's deployed in his life. It's the same in business. It's the same as a father and, and a husband. You just find someone who's doing the things that you want to do and you, you know, in neuro-linguistic program, they call it modeling. You model what they do. And when I'm in a situation where I, when I don't have somebody like that, I, I just always think of my overarching goal in life, and that is to be the ultimate version of myself. Constant, never-ending improvement. And I know, like, it's, I said to my wife yesterday, actually, we were sat having dinner, and we had the Olympics on, and we were watching the girls doing gymnastics, and I said to her, I said, do you not think it, do you, does it not like fascinate you what human beings can do? Like we're all born with the same basic abilities when we're kids. If we're born healthy, you know, we've all got the same potential and capabilities. Look at what these girls are doing. They're running, backflipping, double twist, somersault in and doing with the human body. You know, anyone that applied the, the kind of mindset and strategy and dedication and discipline that these girls have could, could achieve similar results, but some choose to, and some choose not to. Mm. I always want to push myself as hard as I can. When I was able-bodied, it was as a Royal Marine, you know, as, as a martial artist, I was always trying to push myself to be the best I can. And now as a triple amputee, it's as a, an adaptive athlete. And as a, as a, just as a human being now with three prosthetic limbs, I'm always trying to push myself to be the best that I can be. And it is a mindset and you have to cultivate it and work on it and, and feed it with the same kind of attitude that huge successful people use, read the right kind of books, consume the right kind of content, you know, follow the same kind of path. hundred percent. Success leaves clues across everything. And I think that goal setting and having a very clear reason for wanting to do something and it can't be somebody else's i think one of the best things you can do is give away the opinion of other people and focus on your race yet particularly in the world of social media now people almost have their lives curated to be endorsed by other people's opinion and it doesn't add up to a hell of beans no it's it's yeah i think once you're aware of the things that can influence your mindset once you're aware of it you can change it. Mm. And, and that's, that's where the, the difference is, I think, um, with, with people that have that, that positive kind of mindset. You know, do you watch the news every morning and just fill your mind with all the negativity and, mm. and the garbage and stuff? You don't even know if half the stuff is real. Or do you get up in the morning and listen to a motivating podcast yeah. you know, or an audio book? You know, when you're driving in your car, you're listening to 
the Backstreet Boys' greatest hits, which is fine because they're awesome, by the way. Or are you listening to audiobooks? You know, I think Tony Robbins. A little bit more about you than we need to know. That <laughs> I do all male groups, Mark. Wouldn't have picked it. But do you know what I mean? You be, you can become aware. I can see all the books behind you. You know, and, and the pictures of the people. My my shelves are similar. You know, instead of scrolling through social media now for endless hours and going to this black hole, I'm trying to pick up books more and mm. spend that spare hour I've got reading books, getting more in a, in a positive mindset and learning from other people. Mm. But I just think a lot of people's default setting is straight to negativity because mm. they get sucked into the garbage on social media. You know, the love islands and the whatever garbage they've got on TV, yeah. thinking that to be a success in life, you have to have a million followers and you know, a lot of it's so false, you know, it's, um, you can change it if you're just aware of it. That's a huge, huge breakthrough. And, and, and I guess, you know, if you look back on your life, the, 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 the incident, the IED incident, Christmas Eve is a defining moment. Do you think mm -hmm. that you would, and I guess this is a really, really tough question to ask, and I'm sorry to ambush you with this. And you know, for people watching, we don't send a list of questions so people can be prepared. And it's this is what it is. That's a defining moment in your life. If you, I know we can't turn the clock back. Do you see it now as being a positive or negative impact on your life when that happened? Looking at it today's lenses, I think it. I think it's been a a positive on my life. And I don't say that for the sake of saying that. No. So like, I look at my life now and I've got an unbelievable wife, right? Three beautiful, healthy children. I have used this situation that I'm in to its maximum effect. I've, you know, it, I always tell people, right, in adversity, there's opportunity. And I've taken all the opportunities and I've ran with them and I've been able to build a life for me and my family now where, you know, we're very lucky. I say lucky, it's been a lot of hard work, but we're, financially we're in a situation now where we never have to worry again. And, and that's only getting bigger and better. And we're building on that. I've, I feel like it's unlocked. Well, I don't even feel it's unlocked my full potential yet, but it unlocked a part of me that I was suppressing to a degree when I was able-bodied because I was a little bit scared of letting it out. Do you know what I mean? I, I thought I kind of got to a, a level and I thought, right, don't punch above your weight, mate. Just you're at a decent level now. Stay there and just cruise around with everyone else. Mm. Do you know what I mean? As, as a Royal Marine and, and all this kind of stuff. But it, it feels like it's let me open up to other levels now. And I still don't feel I've reached my peak. You know, had it not happened, I had a very good idea of where I wanted my career to go. And I am confident that I could have made it happen but I don't you know when I said just now about my children and my wife because of the nature of, of what it was I wanted to do and the way that life worked I don't think I assume you're going happened. down a special forces path which uh, right yeah is, which is not conducive to any form of family life hmm. it's interesting when we get to look back and reflect um, exactly yeah three things that I've taken out um, from, from, from this talk, Mark, um, you're asking for help is not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of strength if you're prepared to engage and, and, and go mm -hmm. hard. You know, surrounding yourself with people that are positive inputs, inputs onto you that are supportive, that will stretch you rather than mollycoddle you. 
and, and, and setting a new standard for yourself each and every day to be the best version of you. Um, I think if we were to sort of pick three maxims out of our time talking today, stand out loud and clear amongst, you know, what is just, just an incredibly humbling and extremely moving story. You know, and living in a world where, where people tend to indulge themselves and wrap themselves in cotton wool and aren't prepared to step out of the shadows and give it a go in case they fail or in case they're laughed at or in case it doesn't work in the way that they are, whatever setback anyone's had, it falls into insignificance compared to, to that which you shared with us. It's just an absolutely incredible success story wrapped up with an MBE too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which, which, you know, that's again, something I never thought would be a chapter of my life, you know, to receive that kind of a recognition for really what feels like just living my life to, to the best of my ability you know, working with veterans, fundraising. It's, it's a fun life that I live now, you know? So that, that, was, that was awesome. Well, speaking of fundraising, we'll have a link somewhere around this on all of our social so that people can get behind and, 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 and contribute if they so wish. I'm guessing Reorg would be a big one for you. Also the Royal yeah. Association. And uh, right. anything else you'd like us to get behind and support because uh, we'd love to do that for you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. I'd like to finish up with a couple of things. We call it rapid fire, no pun intended. And uh, you're probably better qualified to deal with that than most people. Um, three dead straight questions straight off the bat and instinctive answers. So, you know, you've grouped, you've grouped yourself financially, you've a family to provide for. In terms of investments, property, shares, or crypto? Property. I'm just completing on number six today, actually. Get the keys today. Very exciting, good stuff. Advice to yourself, you give yourself looking in the mirror 20 years ago. Step left. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that could be in the martial arts too, stay away from the right-hander. Um, and follow, following on, obviously you've got three kids, and family is such an important thing. What life advice do you give your kids in terms of, let's say, daring to dream bigger and really going for it, as you've demonstrated with the way that you've carried on this chapter of your life? I, I tell them all the time, never limit yourself. Never limit yourself. The, the two little ones, much easier for them to assimilate that right now. The 16-year-old with social media and peer pressure and all that, a little bit more difficult, but she is flying. She's doing phenomenal. Um, I just tell them all the time, never limit yourself. You know, Do what you want to do that makes you happy. What about the importance of having a mentor or a coach? Something you subscribe to, or do you think it's good to be a lone wolf and go your way? absolutely need mentors either physical ones face-to-face -face ones in real life or virtual ones online that you may never get to meet you know what i mean just find someone that's achieving the results that you want to achieve and copy the process well there's only one thing doesn't it when the process is there the results follow you've just got to make sure you follow it and, and if you stub your toe you don't give up you just keep driving forwards yeah, never give up the first hurdle which unfortunately is one of the key things that separates so many people from success they put too much pressure on themselves. Oh, I made a mistake. People laugh at me. I can't do this. Dig deep, go hard. What, uh, what final advice would you give to somebody that perhaps has faced a challenge, not on the scale of yours, but has faced a challenge and they don't know if they've got enough fuel in the tank to get up and off the canvas and give it a go? What would you say to them? I always find that in the, the times of maximum adversity and struggle, 
that that now to me is the exciting time. It's not the time when I think about giving up. That's the time when I know that things are about to level up. It's all, I heard someone say it once. It's like you can't launch a bow, an arrow, an arrow, sorry, from a bow without drawing the bow backwards first. And then when you let it go, the arrow is going to fly. So now every time that I'm in a situation where I'm struggling and facing adversity and, and I feel like giving up, rather than get down, I get excited because I know that that level up is about to come. You've just got to keep, there's a lot to be said for just being stubborn and just keep going forward, keep going forward, keep going forward. Mm. I think that belief system has shaped this chapter of your life. And I hope at some point you can get yourself back over to Australia when the world uh, returns to some level of normality and we can host you over here and, and spend some more time. This has just been just an incredibly humbling experience. And we're very, very grateful for you sharing as much of your time as you have with us today. And, and the rawness of your story. Um, you know, oftentimes I think people, you know, listen to podcasts and the whole message can be quite curated. This is just about as raw as it comes. And I know it's going to hit people where they need to be hit in a good way. And if it moves the needle and gets them to believe in themselves that they can get past any challenges that they've got and, and, and go beyond what their expectations may be, then we've served them well. And I, I'm so grateful for you sharing your time. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today, Mark Omrad. MBE, an 11-time Invictus medalist, father of three, inspiring leader, great speaker, and a man for all seasons. Thanks very much for joining us. There you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating and hit that donation button, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the other side.